0: From Public Books and Type Media, this is Primary Sources, the show where writers and intellectuals talk about some of the greatest influences on their work. I'm Al Press. My guest today is Andrea Armstrong, a law professor at Loyola University and one of the leading experts on the conditions of incarceration in the United States. Last August, I profiled Andrea in the New Yorker magazine. The article focused on incarceration transparency, an online database she's created to document every death that has taken place in the jails and prisons of Louisiana since 2015. When I invited Andrea to come on the show to talk about an influence on her work, she could have chosen to discuss a fellow scholar. She's a graduate of Yale Law School, and she credits Derrick Bell, Reva Siegel, and Kathleen Cleaver, the only black professor she had at Yale, with shaping her thinking about America's penal system. But Andrea decided to talk about the debt she owes to another, less conventional influence, the human beings caged inside our jails and prisons. She says nothing has influenced her thinking more than talking to incarcerated people. In fact, incarcerated people have become such an important influence on her work that she regularly pays visits to jails and prisons across the country to survey the conditions and hear from the folks inside. In our conversation, we talked about how the insights of incarcerated people have shaped Andrea's worldview and professional agenda, and how listening to them has changed her understanding of the nature of punishment. Also, just so you know, this conversation includes references to sensitive topics, including sexual violence and sexual harassment. Andrea, thank you so much for doing this. As you know, this is a podcast about influences. You have said that the largest influence on your work has been listening to people who are incarcerated when did listening to people who are incarcerated start mattering to you
1: huh it's hard to pinpoint a moment when it first started mattering. Um, I mean, I think in general, I had been doing human rights work beforehand, and part of that work is listening to testimony and experiences. And so I think it's it's always been an implicit part of my work, um, but I think it became more explicit when I first joined the academy as a law professor. Mm. I was thinking about, you know, what are the things that I'm going to write about, but also what are those things that will make a difference? And it's hard as an academic to know that your work could could have some sort of impact regardless of what it is. And my very first paper, my first Law Review article that I wrote came out of a conversation that I had with somebody who was incarcerated at Angola at the time, and I couldn't answer his question. And so my first Law Review article was really a response to the question he asked me.
0: And what was that question? I'm so curious.
1: So this was Corey Williams, and he, at the time, had just come off of death row at Angola, and uh, I, I wasn't even uh, representing him. I mean, I was visiting him as, as part of a, a kind of externship I was doing during law school. Um, and he had said he was working in the field. And he was telling me about what that felt like every day, what time he got up and what type of work he was doing. And he just looked at me and said, why they get to make me a slave again? And that just really struck home, and I didn't—I didn't have an answer for him.
0: And when you say when you say Andrea, sorry to interrupt, but when you say the field, you mean he was working in the field in Angola?
1: Yes. So Angola is actually uh, about eighteen thousand acres, and it is in fact a former plantation site, um, and. W- one of the, the jobs that you can be forced to do there uh, when you're serving your sentence is to essentially work the row crops uh, that are like plantation crops that are still a part of Angola. And it's actually one of the largest job assignments that you can get. Um, and it also pays two cents an hour. And so he's telling me about this because remember he had been on death row and death row at that time was solitary confinement and they weren't really allowed out of their cells at all. And so, you know, he's freed from death row. Uh, He's now serving a a life sentence. So this was his first encounter with prison work assignments. And so, you know, he's now free, but then also put into this position where, where he felt like he was a slave. And just, I mean, the purity of the question, it just seemed so, like such a basic question, right? That I should have had a ready answer to. But I didn't. And the more he talked about the conditions and what it was like, I started seeing analogs to the history of Angola. And so that started me off down the rabbit trail of, you know, well, what is the history of Angola? And, you know, was it really a plantation? And, you know, why do we continue to plant cotton, for example, on this plantation, right? And force people, primarily black men, to pick it. And it just brought home, you know, being in that space, right? So I had driven in to Angola to see him. And and the way that you get to that particular camp, you go down this long road and there's these, you know, kind of stereotypical, almost like trees that are overarching the road as you drive down this straight path. And what you see are are men uh, on horseback with rifles in full uniform over rows of like bent brown backs. And, you know, the combination I think of being in that space and then being asked what is a very basic question that I also did not have an answer to um, really struck home for me. Mm.
0: It's such a vivid image you've just given us of that visit. And it's a visit that even many people and law professors who write about and study mass incarceration, tend not to make that often. And I wonder if that is something that you think about as as you do this work and and why, you know, from that point on, you've sort of been committed to going to these places, to seeing directly Mm -hmm. those kinds of scenes.
1: You know, these are spaces that are deliberately designed to both keep the general public out, but also keep certain people in and to eliminate contact between the two groups. you know. And so part of me just wants to get into any space that has been prohibited for me, right? I just wanna see what's in there. But I think being in those spaces helps you understand and ask better questions and maybe even different questions, right? So I'm really struck in some cases by how loud they are all the time, right? There's there's constantly gates that are clanging and there's, you know, radios that are buzzing and there's bells and, you know, you can hear the wheels of the different meal carts squeaking down the hallway and you hear water running and doors slamming and voices and checkers and you hear all these things constantly, you know, and that might raise a question about noise pollution, right? Which isn't necessarily a constitutional claim or, or something that's even to my knowledge, been litigated extensively, but it would be something that has a daily impact, right? And a cumulative impact on people who were inside. And you would never know that unless you were there. Mm. I think the other part though, is, you know, the people who were in those spaces all the time, they can tell you, but you have to know which questions to ask. And so, Being in those spaces is not a substitute for talking to people who are incarcerated and better understanding their day-to-day experience, but I think it helps. Hmm.
0: I mean, what you're saying reminds me of something that the attorney Brian Stevenson has talked about. Um, uh, Specifically, he said he's talked about the importance of getting proximate, in his words, to people who are experiencing injustice. He said at one point, we cannot create justice without getting close to places where injustices prevail. And I wonder if you relate to that idea, uh, if that's part of what impels you to visit places like Angola.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I want to do my work well. I want my work to have an impact and, and an influence, hopefully. And it's hard to do that at a distance, right? Because the questions that might be most important to to you at a distance are not necessarily the questions uh, that are going to have the most impact as you figure out what those answers are. And so proximity to me feels very real, but that also does stand in tension, right? There is, um, in some cases, it can feel... And this is going sound really harsh. I mean, it can feel like you're visiting people who are caged, right? And so there's this kind of tourist kind of voyeuristic element of it that constantly has to be questioned and combated when you're visiting these facilities as well, right? Mm-hmm. It is very easy to just walk the hallways and to view, right? Keep your hands to yourself and just kind of, you know, walk through. But that's not the type of experience I think that's really um, going to teach you anything, right? It's in conversation that we learn things. And how do you
0: have those conversations, Andrea? I mean, what you're describing sounds in some ways almost insurmountable, at least to someone who ventures in for 45 minutes, gets the tour, walks out of the prison, hears something said maybe in front of a warden or another security official, but doesn't get the kind of, maybe the kind of question you mentioned, Corey, um, sharing Mm. with you. How do you surmount those barriers?
1: I think you just connect to people. You actually make eye contact. You recognize their humanity. You ask them how they're doing. You know, there are people around you everywhere and you acknowledge them as human beings. Um, And if they choose to talk to you, then all the better, right? So, so I bring my students into the New Orleans jail, you know, we're, we're learning about constitutional criminal procedure and a lot of the rules that, that we're learning those cases take place in jails, right? So an informant case, for example, and whether that violates your Sixth Amendment right to counsel. So I want them to see the spaces in which some of these cases occur, for them to understand how it's almost impossible to have a private conversation in some facilities, right? And how things can be overheard and then used against you in your criminal case. And so when I take my students there, you know, we go and we visit and I talk with my students about acknowledging the people who were around them, right? Not just talking to the guards, but acknowledging that there are human beings everywhere, right? In these spaces. And then we usually end up in a module, which, you know, the sheriff um, usually pre-selects so that there's not as much of a choice element there um, by us, but we, we end up in a module and I'll always just kind of say out loud, listen, you know, I've brought my students. These are baby lawyers. We would love to speak with some of you. If you are willing, if there's something that you feel like you can teach these young law students, we'd love to have a conversation with you. But if not, right, we understand that we are entering your space and your home for the moment. Um, And if you don't want to talk with us, that's absolutely fine too. And people make those choices for themselves. Right? So some will wander off back mm. to their cells, others will come and, and sit with us, you know, and they they always have really important things to say. It's usually the most meaningful moment for my students on these visits.
0: Do you think there are things that incarcerated people intuitively grasp about the criminal justice system and for that matter the law? That maybe some of your classmates at Yale or where you attended law school or your fellow law professors perhaps
1: don't grasp. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's all about perspective, right? So, you know, we can all be in the same building, but if we're on different floors or if some of us have a view to the outside that others don't, we are gonna intuitively grasp things about that architecture of that system that we wouldn't otherwise. You know, it's essential, especially when we're thinking about civil rights, right? The rights of of every human being in combination with the criminal system, which, you know, has very clear objectives and purposes. If we really want to do justice, then we need to understand the variety of perspectives, and most importantly, the people who have direct experience.
0: One incarcerated person I know has influenced you deeply is John Thompson. Can you tell me his story?
1: It's a very long story. I think I'll just kind of summarize the little bits, which is basically that he was prosecuted for first-degree murder. Um, He was sentenced to death row. He had seven different execution dates set for him. And the entire time, he um, talked about how he was innocent. And it turns out that uh, the prosecution, the New Orleans District Attorney's Office, had withheld significant pieces of evidence that would have exonerated him. And allowed him to participate more fully in his defense. And, you know, he eventually was in fact retried with all of the evidence available to both sides. The jury deliberated for an incredibly short amount of time. And um, after his release, he sued for civil rights violations and in fact, one in the district court with a jury, and the jury awarded him $14 million, $1 million for each year that he was wrongfully held on death row. Um, he was in for a total of 18, 14 of those years were on death row. And I think in, in one of the more famous Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court actually reversed that jury verdict. But he, you know a good friend and, and, you know, after all of this, he stayed in New Orleans and continued to fight for justice and, and the rights of people who are incarcerated for the rest of his life.
0: It's an amazing story. And, and from my understanding, Andrea, JT is not the only person you got to know well who had been wrongly convicted um, mm-hmm. and who spent time on death row.
1: Yeah, so I mean JT, so JT is how uh many of us refer to him. It's his nickname. You know, so JT basically when he came back and was free, he spent a, so much of his time and effort to provide a soft landing place for other exonerees, and so he founded Resurrection After Exoneration. And so he was really the first stop for a lot of people who were being released. Uh, due to wrongful convictions. And in fact, he was the first home and really the primary caretaker for Glenn Ford, who um, was released after being held wrongfully on death row for 29 years. You know, I
0: wonder, Andrea, if one of the sort of things that JT and, and Glenn Ford and, and other uh, incarcerated people you've gotten to know and spoken to grasp uh, to get back to that thing of you know certain things you learn from being inside the system. that But, but one of the most basic is, is just that, that the law is not neutral. That it is, mm-hmm. as you've put it to me, an expression of power. Uh, and I know that's mm-hmm. how you see the law, but that's not a given when one meets a law professor. And I wonder if <laughs> if some of the ways you think about the law and power functioning in the law has been influenced by people like JT and people like Corey.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think for me, it actually is hard to kind of separate out the ways in which they've influenced um, how I perceive the system. You know, I do think that the law isn't always responsive to certain types of violations, right? So, for example j t and and this um, this stuck with me. I mean, the first time he said it, it just kind of blew me away. He said, "Listen, you know, I was exonerated, you know, and I sued, but what didn't happen? none of the district attorneys who withheld that evidence. None of them were prosecuted for attempted murder cuz that's what they tried to do to me, right? And so this idea that if we were to have a, you know, attempted execution on the street, the district attorney would pursue that as a as a murder charge and that would be attempted murder, but when it happens in the legal system, right? He had seven execution dates. That is seven dates, including the last one, which was, you know, was right before his his son's high school graduation. Each of those dates was a moment where, you know, he thought his life was ending. And if that's not attempted murder, I'm not really sure what is. And that is law as power. There were never any attempted murder charges on any of the prosecutors who withheld evidence in his case. And in fact, the lack of accountability for the prosecutors in his case um, and in other cases is something that, you know, he spent his life until his death uh, pursuing. And, and unfortunately, he didn't get to see that in his lifetime.
0: I can't help but hear that and think about your work and what you now do and what you have done in creating a public database to track Folks who have died in jails and prisons, often under circumstances where, as in JT's almost case, no one is held accountable. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think um, the work that that I am doing right now, and you know, with my students, right? So, this is part of a class that I teach with them, and we collect the death records from every single jail, prison. Uh, detention center in the state of Louisiana. And we are at the very initial stages of where JT would like us to go, right? Um, We are simply documenting the fact that deaths are in fact happening behind bars. We haven't gotten to the question and we don't have the information that we need in order to be able to tell how many of those deaths are preventable. There's certainly a couple right, that stand out. Um, but even in those cases, it is rare to see um, criminal indictments for people who may have played a role in those preventable deaths. You know, even in those cases where we in fact see like a civil rights judgment, right? So they, the family might be successful, although it is rare, in a civil rights uh, lawsuit Uh, for the wrongful death of their family member. But to then also see criminal charges is almost unheard of. And so we're at the very initial stages, I think, of what we do. And it really is focused on transparency. But I think that it would be a larger piece for for some of the things that JT really fought for, which was accountability and holding people accountable for the decisions they make.
0: I'd love to to push you a little more, Andrea, on on specific ways uh, that listening to incarcerated people has shaped the content of your work. One example that comes to mind for me is this report you co-authored, I think in 2018, called Dying in East Baton Rouge Parish Prison, Mm -hmm. which documented, I believe it was 25 deaths at that prison. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking of in particular is the way that report began. Um, Can you talk about that, how it opened?
1: So that report was actually following some other work that we had done led by the Promise of Justice Initiative, which is a a local uh, nonprofit advocacy organization here in New Orleans. And that work had been following the murder of Alton Sterling and the arrests and detention of protesters. And so hearing kind of folks as they're exiting the jail what the conditions are like and this feeling that like we are leaving so many people behind right we are getting out because we are the protesters but we were doing you know a couple of days with people who had been in there for much longer and and under pretty horrendous conditions and so we started looking at deaths and collecting information about The obscene number of deaths that occurs in that jail, right? That was 25 between 2012 and 2016. But, you know, since 2012, we're now at, I want to say, 48 deaths um, in that jail. Yes. And so, in one jail. Yeah. And so, we felt like we had kind of these themes that we were seeing among the various deaths. But people and the experiences of of people and who we had lost was was almost invisible in the report that we had drafted together. And so the very first page is an in memoriam uh, page where we simply say their names and how old they were. And then for those um, deaths where we knew the family or had a relationship with the family, We asked them to just reflect on uh, who they had lost, right? What were the things that their child liked to do? What were their talents? What were the things about those people who died beyond their charges? Um, So that we could really understand the impact of of these deaths, right? And the data is important and the legal arguments are important, but no one pays attention to your legal arguments or um, the data unless they understand why it's important. And we really wanted to try and convey that uh, in the opening. And so we included pictures of uh, the people who had died along with a couple of quotations from their family members about, um, about their lives separate from the criminal charges.
0: It's a bracing report for so many reasons, um, not least the facts you you mentioned, the just shocking number of deaths and the fact that so many of them were pretrial detainees who were actually still waiting for their day in court. Mm-hmm. But to me, the emotional impact of that report was conveyed in that opening page and in those photographs and in the Sort of biographies that you included, because in a way, I think you know. Speaking honestly, I, it's not what one expects. I mean, you, you open a report and and you expect the data and you expect the um, the argument and the and the summary. Um, and this was very different. Was it deliberate?
1: Absolutely. This is the influence of people like Glenn and Corey and and JT and and you know Fox and Rob Rich and Kiana and. You know, Sarita and all of these people um, who are part of our communities now uh, on the free side, right? You know, it is important to to highlight what we lose. There's these stereotypes around who was actually incarcerated, and it turns out that all of the people who are incarcerated belong to somebody. There's somebody's husband or or uncle or brother or child. And that gets lost when, you know, even the newspaper reporting on a death behind bars, which, you know, can be infrequent if if it's covered at all, you know, will often just show their mugshot and summarize their criminal charges. And that's all we learn about what we as a society in effect did to another person. Every single one of my articles has come from a question or situation or conversation with somebody who um, was either currently incarcerated or or had been incarcerated. I think for me, one of the most kind of interesting, the one that kind of stretched me beyond my my usual boundaries was a conversation with uh, Glenn Ford. So, you know, Glenn had, had come off of... 29 years of uh, wrongful incarceration on death row. And JT and I, um, and there was a a whole group of people, we called ourselves Team Glenn, right? There were about seven of us. And, um, you know, within a month of his release, he had a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking with him about, um, about his death right and his illness and what caused it and and also trying to make the most of the the amount of freedom that he did have for such a short amount of time you know ultimately he was convinced that death row had still killed him right even if he wasn't physically there and that being on death row um you know, related to the health care that, that he was able to receive, which he had some choice words for, those are the things that made him sick. And that is the reason why cancer wasn't caught before his release.
0: And what you mean by that, if I'm understanding correctly, Andrea, is not just he didn't get proper health care. He didn't get, you know, maybe a, a an early diagnosis that might have led to treatment that might have... Uh, enabled him to live much longer, but that being at Angola, being on death row was actually a toxic experience that may have contributed to the cancer itself. Is that right?
1: Exactly. You know, we uh, were doing lots of videotaping at that time. I mean, we knew that he was going to die. And uh, so we were just recording so many things, right? Just conversations and his time with us. And one was um, JT was actually interviewing Glenn about the conditions on death row. And I'm listening to it and and I'm hearing things around environmental justice, air pollution, water pollution, rust, lead, you know, the ways that they would clean the sewage pipes um, so that sewage would literally run down the death row tier. And, you know, I had never done environmental law right? I, you know, I did, I did prison conditions, right? I did constitutional law and criminal law. Um, but the way that he described conditions, it sounded like it was an environmental lawsuit. And so I started trying to kind of categorize it, right? Thinking about the different categories of things that he told me about, and then trying to fit them into environmental law. and to, And to think about, well, Do the kind of environmental regulations uh, that we have in the free world, do they even apply behind bars and are they enforced? And, And so simply him kind of talking about this and his connection that he made between the toxic environment that he lived in and his terminal cancer diagnosis really opened my eyes to thinking about these things differently that yes, it might be a Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment type of civil rights lawsuit, but it could also be something else, <laughs> that it could also involve other areas of law. You know, in lots of different ways, prisons and jails are, are kind of exempt from some of the rules that would govern the same type of activity if it was conducted outside of the facility. And so, really, he opened my eyes to thinking about conditions in a completely different way. And um, so, I wrote uh, a piece about that, trying to understand Glenn's claims and and his his experience through an environmental justice lens. And we're doing that even now, um, thinking about like climate change, right? So, when we talk about climate change, we think about, especially here in New Orleans, right? We think about hurricanes. Um, we think about the loss of, you know, kind of barrier reefs. We don't necessarily think about how is climate change impacting populations who are structurally prohibited from adapting and responding to certain climate changes in the same ways that, that we are actually encouraged in the free world to adapt and respond. Um, and so they become uniquely vulnerable when you look at it through an environmental justice lens in a way that they um, are not necessarily when you're having a standard climate change conversation.
0: How do you think the study of mass incarceration or more broadly the the criminal justice system uh, might alter if more scholars had the kinds of direct encounters with people in confinement that you've described?
1: I mean, I think... We would see a different prioritization around rights and obligations. Um, I think in the abstract, you know, for example, as lawyers, when certain substantive doors are closed, we turn to procedure. And we say, okay, well, even if they substantively are allowed to do that thing, then, you know, there are at least certain procedural steps that they have to go through. Before they're allowed to substantively do that thing. And I'm not sure that if we were uh, in more robust conversation, right? And if, in fact, people who are or have been incarcerated were kind of setting the agenda, whether we would be so quick to abandon some of the substantive claims, right? There are some things that just should not be done to a person, regardless of the procedure.
0: Hmm. I wonder if you feel those encounters would also inevitably lead to a different conversation or or maybe simply a, a broader conversation about conditions you know there are prison abolitionists who who sort of shy away from a focus on conditions in in some cases out of fear that you know, if you focus on that, the state will mobilize to simply pour more resources into jails and prisons, and that's the last thing we want. Um, and yet, as you've documented, you know, there are more than two million people behind bars in this country, and and the brutal and inhumane conditions in too many facilities don't just raise constitutional issues, but but can cost lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you feel. That conversation might shift.
1: So I I don't know so much around the abolition front, right? I mean, it's actually really interesting. My students and I, uh, we recently hosted a, a guest speaker, also someone who was wrongly convicted, right? Because those are the people who who are most available to come and speak to my class, right? Uh, so it's not to to kind of preference, those who are innocent versus those who actually did the, the thing that they were accused of. Um, and the students were really shocked that he was not an abolitionist. He was like, listen, I did time in there. There are some people who deserve to be locked up. <laughs> um, and so that was a really interesting perspective for them. But I do think that having people who have been incarcerated talk about the punishment Um, That is inherent in their incarceration is really illuminating, right? You know, there are in fact politicians who have said, "Oh no, they should not have access to air conditioning down here in South Louisiana, where the heat index, right, can reach 120 degrees." They'll say, "Well, the punishment is you know they don't get to live a comfortable lifestyle," or, or there's another case. There's a, a Seventh Circuit case where, you know, a judge just kind of says, well, you know, nobody's entitled to maid service while they're incarcerated, right? It's supposed to be punishment. But that's a very narrow conception of of the punishment that is wrought by incarceration, right? The punishment, when I talk to people who have been incarcerated, is they couldn't attend the funeral of their sister who died. And they could never say their last goodbyes, even though she was in the hospital for three months, before she died, they were denied that chance to say goodbye. And that is a lasting consequence. They will never be able to make that up, even if they're released within five years. It's the inability to see their child graduate from high school, right? Pride in in being a parent and the disruption to that relationship, it is the inability to provide financially for their children and their loved ones or help take care of their parents as they age those are very real punishments and yet we don't talk about those punishments instead we we say oh well you know that you know the type of food right we should be able to produce that cheaply and they should be required to work for us and you know we're you know they shouldn't have an expectation of full health care because you know if they wanted to avoid those punishments they shouldn't have done the crime and it's just a very narrow idea of of the types of punishments that incarceration really imposes and so I think those conditions they they matter and they're important and it's important whether people have access to any sort of cooling mechanism in a hundred degree temperatures right. But I think we also need to think about all of the other punishments that are inherent in incarceration and maybe think about whether those in fact are enough.
0: Hmm. I imagine the lack of contact and encounters and and input uh, from people behind bars, that that is something that strikes you not just when it comes to people who study the legal system and, and legal scholars, but also judges and politicians. You mm. know, is that, is that something that, that comes to mind given how, how your work tries to draw us closer and draw us in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, was able to clerk for a federal judge right after law school. And one of the things that she did even as a judge is she would go and visit facilities. You know, some cases, it was kind of former clients who uh, were incarcerated. But I think that they are our public institutions. And anybody, whether you're a legislator or a judge, or you work at um, an auto repair shop or a library, those are our institutions. And we should be able to go in them. And we should be able to see what is being done essentially in our name. And I think that is potentially transformative for how we think about um, justice and what counts for justice in our U.S. system.
0: When you go into a jail or a prison, is it, is it the thinking that is altered or is there also just a set of emotions that come up? Uh, obviously, uh, emotions and thoughts are connected, but but is just the emotional experience of being there part of what you think is so important and valuable um, and
1: powerful? I certainly think it's part of it. You know, we are full human beings at all times, right? And so... When I go into facility, you know, I may be going there with a particular task or project, right? So maybe I'm going in as an auditor, right, under the the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Maybe I'm going in as a legal visit. Maybe I'm going in as a friend visit. Maybe I'm just going in as a you know, I, I cold call the sheriff and say, This is the stuff I study and I wanna learn, you know, what you're doing in your jail to address these particular problems. Um, so, I can think about how those might be applied in other places, right? So, I go in for lots of different tasks, but the emotions are often the same. They are difficult places to be, and it, it gives me an enormous amount of empathy for the people who work in those facilities day in and day out. It's so interesting because, you know, correctional staff and incarcerated people share the same space. For, for eight to 12 hour shifts. Um, and we should want more humane working conditions for those employees of the city or the state, just as much as we want more humane conditions for the people who remain involuntarily in those conditions for 24 hours a day. Um, for me, it always takes a certain moment to, I guess, detox is the best word. Um, when I leave those facilities, you know, it, it takes me a beat to, to readjust, um, you know, to get rid of the sounds and the smells and, uh, all of those things which are, which are so omnipresent when you're, when you're behind bars.
0: Hmm. I'm really struck by what you said in part because, uh, you know, thinking about, um, carceral state uh, you know i've just written a, a book dirty work that that is partly about the work of caging and confining mm-hmm. so many people and, and of course the the role that too many jails and prisons play as as de facto mental health mm-hmm. <laughs> treatment centers but but i wonder if being there and and, and going into these facilities you, do you feel like it's um If the folks who are incarcerated are being mistreated and dehumanized, it's likely to happen as well to the people who work there, uh, even though they have a lot more power and a lot more freedom.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think um, one of the most difficult things to change when we're trying to improve conditions and when i say improve conditions like we're we're basically just trying to improve safety and security right <laughs> like mm-hmm. um to ensure that jails abide by their obligation for the safe and secure and humane custody of another human being you know when we when we think about those things um and the impact that it can have on on a person's daily life right A lot of those things are related to the culture of the facility. And changing jail culture is one of the hardest things to do. And I think that it also, um, it pervades everything. So it's not just how custodial staff treat incarcerated people, but it's also how they treat one another. What we know around the Prison Rape Elimination Act is, um, and, and the kind of statistics that have been able to be gathered through these audits, is that, you know, where we see high levels of sexual harassment, we also expect to find high levels of sexual assault. And that may be between incarcerated people, but it's also between custodial staff and incarcerated people. And when you talk to other custodial staff who are not involved in that particular incident, there are often kind of red flags that they are seeing every day about how people act that they already know who within their staff you know, is, is perhaps more predatory than others. Um, it's really telling when we do these audits the ways in which they talk about each other but also talk about Interactions with incarcerated people.
0: Andrea, thank you so much for joining this podcast. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: It's been an honor, AL. Thank you for having me.
0: Primary Sources is a co production of public books. And Type Media Center. Public Books is an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can learn more at publicbooks.org. Type Media Center is a nonprofit home for independent journalists. It's committed to building a more equitable future for journalism in the public interest. Learn more about its flagship programs at typemediacenter.org. Our show's executive producer is Caitlin Zaloom, the founding editor of Public Books. Our producer is DJ Kashmir. Our engineer is Jess Engabretsen. Special thanks to Kelly McKinney, the publisher and managing editor of Public Books, and Tea Grobo, Executive Director of Type Media Center. See you all next week for a brand new episode.